0: Welcome to the Analysis.News. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Jason Call, who's taking on a Democratic incumbent in the 2nd District in Washington State for Congress. Uh, It's an important race, I think, because not only is it a progressive taking on a corporate Democrat, uh, it's also a progressive running in a district which is uh, heavily people who work at Boeing and who depend on Boeing For their livelihoods. So, be back in just a few seconds. Please don't forget there's a donate button uh, and uh, subscribe buttons and all kinds of buttons. So, as I said, I think this race, uh, the primary, Jason Call taking on Rick Larson. In the 2nd District of Washington State is of national significance. Uh, the reason is I think anytime someone makes a serious challenge to an incumbent corporate Democrat, it's, it's important and, and one of the important fronts of struggle going on in the United States. But I think this is a particular interest because the big employer, perhaps half of 145,000 global workers for Boeing, uh, so close to seventy thousand work in Washington State, and many of them work and live in the second district. Uh, so how Jason talks to uh, workers in the aerospace industry about climate change and and decreasing the Pentagon budget, uh, I think, is of a lot of importance uh, for pro- progressives running right across the country. So. Jason Call is a lifelong progressive activist. He's a former public school math teacher of 18 years from Marysville, Washington. He's running for the U.S. House in Washington's 2nd Congressional District, challenging 11-term corporate-backed Democrat incumbent Rick Larson in the August 2nd top two primary, meaning uh, you could have and probably will have, I think people are expecting, two Democrats that actually run against each other in the action in the election in November, uh, because that's the way uh, this primary works, and increasingly that is the way, at least on the West Coast, primaries are working. Uh, Call is running a campaign champi- championing Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, expanding the Supreme Court, and reining in the troubling influence of corporations in our politics. He's earned the endorsement of most of the local Democratic Party organizations in the district. Of course, not the National Democratic Party, but the local Democratic Party, including sole endorsements from two of the five uh, counties, District's five counties. and The incumbent, Rick Lawson, is uh, sits on the following committees: the House Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. He's received many corporate campaign contributions, including from Boeing. Now joining us from District Two in Washington State is Jason Call. Thanks for joining me, Jason.
1: Very much appreciated, Paul. Happy to be here.
0: So. You're out knocking on doors, and, and you have a team that's doing it, too. and, and Given the, the uh, number of people that work for Boeing, some of the doors you're knocking on are people who directly work for Boeing. Uh, but as the largest employer in Washington State, and, and I assume that means in your district, a lot of other people indirectly depend on Boeing for their employment. So, what are you hearing from people who work or depend on the aerospace industry when you're saying climate crisis is real? Uh, we have to decarbonize, and we have to cut the uh, military budget. So, what are you hearing from Boeing workers, and how are you doing with them?
1: Yeah. So, I have um, I have friends who work at Boeing. They're progressive people. They understand um, what we're facing with the climate crisis they certainly understand um, that that we are dumping a trillion dollars plus into the military industrial complex while uh, things like housing and healthcare and education uh, take a back seat I mean those are people's real needs uh, also and um, they they also understand that I'm you know I'm a union supporter I mean Boeing Boeing has a strong union um, and, and I think they understand, many of them understand, not all of them, of course, I mean, there's diversity of opinion on this, Um, but they understand that we're going to have to make some transitions if we're going to survive the future. And certainly uh, it's going to impact the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I've heard from people who work at refineries, you know, you're going to take away my job. I'm willing to have those conversations because all of the plans for the Green New Deal and the transitions that we need to make are based in ensuring, and uh, because I support a federal jobs guarantee uh, at a living wage, are ensuring that people are able to transition into other um, uh, industries that are going to be more conducive for a livable future. I mean, this is one of the hard conversations we have to have at this point in time. Are we going to continue with global militarization? Are we going to continue pumping out fossil fuels into our atmosphere when all of the climate science says uh, we have to get off of that right now? Are we going to avoid the investments that we need um, in local mass transit, in, in high-speed rail that are going to impact the aviation industry? I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons Rick Larson uh, doesn't support the Green New Deal is because he's heavily funded by aviation. Certainly, uh, Boeing being a massive employer in our district, um, he wants to make sure that that uh, that he keeps that in and he's chair of the aviation uh, Subcommittee of transport transportation also as well as being as you mentioned the fourth ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee I mean he's heavily invested in ensuring the continuance of you know a, America's global military hegemony as well as the supremacy of, of aviation as a form of air travel but you know we have to have these hard conversations right now about not What's happening? You know, not not about people's existence right now. Although that's a that's a huge conversation. Like, how are we going to help people who are? I mean, the the housing market in in my district alone is exploding. People are being uh, uh, priced out of their homes. Uh, people, uh, you know, we've got these companies like Invitation Homes moving in and buying up homes in in residential neighborhoods. We so. So the housing market is hitting us hard here. Um, It's great for for some homeowners and it's great for landlords. It's not great for uh, the working class, uh, and that includes people at Boeing. So, you know, we have to have these tough conversations, not just about what's happening right now, but about where we're going to be 20, 30 years from now. And I think people are showing a willingness to have those conversations.
0: So when you have, uh, you know, you assess Who's in your district? What percentage of voters do you think either work at Boeing, or who's living indirectly depends on Boeing? I mean, even if you have a restaurant, you need Boeing workers to come and sure. buy your
1: food. Well, I mean, I would say anywhere from fifty to seventy thousand people. I mean, Boeing has um, a large workforce in Washington state. It's not all in my district, although Boeing's largest assembly plant for commercial aircraft is in my district. Um, And my district's uh, um, Boeing relationship is more around um, the commercial aircraft industry rather than it is the military aircraft industry, but of course Larson has deep ties to the military industrial complex. Um, So the the workers in my district uh, may not be as impacted as much because they're not the military wing of what Boeing does. Um, but- well, well, when you well when
0: you're talking about climate crisis, uh, you are also need to include obviously that commercial aviation yep. uh, has to tra- be yep. transformed. It's one of the major sources of carbon emissions. Uh, so. You know, And Boeing's health as a company depends on the military-industrial complex, even if your area is commercial. So what are you hearing from the Boeing workers? I'm not, I mean, not your progressive right. friends who work at Boeing, unless, unless you think the majority of people are like them, but I kind of doubt it, given who they've been voting for. And let me just say, in your district, uh, Larson got elected, I think, what, in 2000? Uh, something like election. that. But before that, you, you you had a lot of Republicans. And while he's the last few elections, he's kind of dominated, uh, he did previously have some pretty close calls with Republicans. Only once.
1: So, it, only, once. only once. In, in 2010, okay, so it was mid Obama's term uh first term uh and there was that red wave all across uh the country where Democrats lost a thousand seats in in Congress and state legislatures that 's where he came closest to potentially losing his seat but you know uh yeah, i have to say I'm, Im i'm glad he didn't because the guy who was who was running against him was you know a complete right wing nut job uh but you know he he did but, uh, since then since two thousand and ten he's he's felt, held this seat firmly two to one. In fact, the Republicans don't even invest at the national level, sort of the federal level level in Congressional District 2, because it is so solidly Democratic. Now they do invest in state races because our county, uh, uh, our our legislative districts um, do have that smaller, you know, smaller um, uh, geographical area, uh, do have some seats that are, would be considered swing. Um, so they invest. They invest locally at the state level. They just simply don't invest uh, at the national level because they know they can't win it.
0: Okay. So what are you saying when you run into people who say, "Look, my job depends on Boeing, one way or the other." Uh, I, I hear that it's mostly commercial aviation, but it doesn't change no. the issue that much, given the climate. So what are you hearing from them, and what are you saying? Well,
1: people want to know uh, that they're going to have job security, and so I talk to them about job security. That is, you know, the federal jobs guarantee, uh, which is which is part of the Green New Deal um, is ensuring that people have jobs and a just transition. We don't wanna take anybody out of an industry or we don't wanna phase out an industry and not have uh, places for for that workforce to go. And so when we're talking about engineering, design, manufacture, uh, these are all jobs that can transition into a new new green, uh, green, climate friendly transportation industry and energy infrastructure industry. And those are the conversations that we need to have. Now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say that, that we're not met with some skepticism because when people are pulling in a good paycheck and they have a good union job and they have good health care through through Boeing, um, they they are resistant to that kind of change, but the conversation needs to be had none, nonetheless. Um, once we are past the primary, which is less than two weeks away right now, and and I, I would say with 99.99% certainty, it's going to be me and Rick uh, down the stretch to November, um, we're, we're going to have to be having these conversations a lot. Um, so, you know we're we're willing to have it. I mean, the, what what we're talking about here is understanding uh, what, what the future is, uh, and in this district in particular, you know, we we are an extremely coastal district. We have more coastline in this district than most other districts in the country, um, and so we're going to be substantially impacted by uh, rising tides. Um, and, and I think people are. You know, it's, it's tough because you know, you know the reality is there, there's a lot of climate denial out there. Um, and so we have to hit people with the facts um, and, and we have to talk to them um, about the security of their jobs moving forward. Not the same job, but that we can transition them to a new job that they are suited for, including the training that they may need um, in order to get up to speed with whatever industry they're, they're transitioning into. But you know, we can't deny the fact that we have to make changes.
0: Now, I heard you say uh, a federal job guarantee at a living wage. Uh, now, uh, Boeing workers are making a hell of a lot more than, quote unquote, a living wage. Um, I would think they need a guarantee of the same wage. Uh, I know Bob Poland, who works at the Perry Institute, he's done a study of what it would take to pay fossil fuel workers the same pay. And it actually wasn't that much. It was, I think, it was two billion dollars over for three years, of paying every fossil fuel worker in the country the same wage they're already making. I don't know if there's been the similar study for the aerospace industry. I it would probably be more money. But uh, I mean, isn't the argument that why should any aerospace or fossil fuel worker uh, make suffer more consequences given the whole society's been benefiting from this?
1: yeah i it that they are absolutely having those legitimate concerns i mean for their own personal welfare they are having those legitimate concerns uh but but you know we have to appeal to what what is the future going to look like for their kids and grandkids if we don't make these changes? So yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I, I, I talk about a living wage to sort of a standard for everybody. Everybody deserves a job at a living wage, but certainly we want to guarantee that these workers are, are making, uh, the, the same wage that they had been making. Um, and, uh, I think we can do that. Like, like you, you said with the, with the fossil fuel industry, we, the, the federal, gov- the federal government has, you know, virtually unlimited resources if it puts them in the right place and makes sure that that the resource where it's spending its resources come back to the community to you know grow the economy in a sustainable way as opposed to you know i the the military industrial complex is is good for the individual workers who are being paid uh who are being paid but it's kind of a dead-end industry in terms of return to the greater economy um you know every bullet and every bomb um it doesn't you know causes war causes destruction or is a part of war and part of destruction um but it's not it's not like education it's not like healthcare, it's not like something that is that is Foundational for the health of a society, um, and I think those are the things that we need to look at—the bigger picture of what is a healthy society moving forward. Because we have some real challenges um, for, and and I would I would appeal to the union mindset because Boeing workers are very union minded. They have a strong union. I always appeal to the union mindset of like you know everybody does better when everybody does better. So let's let's make sure that we're investing resources where everybody can do better, and you will do better also. Um, it, it's a tough conversation to have, but again, we've got to have that now. Conversation. When you say
0: there's a lot of climate denial out there, uh, how much? I mean, given recent heat waves, uh, forest fires, uh, flooding. Uh, you know, the evidence is clearly piling up here. Uh, but are people just so concerned about their jobs they just can't open their minds to it? And, and how, I don't know if you have any assessment of, of what percentage of the people you're talking to are kind of in climate denial, but how significant is it?
1: Well, here's the thing. I mean, typically we have about 30, 35% of this district that you would consider right wing or Republican. A lot of them are just heads in the sand. They don't understand the science or they don't want to understand the science. I mean, I was literally arguing with somebody yesterday about that. We are having a very mild summer. We are not now out in Eastern Washington. uh, I was there a few days ago. We're hitting 100 degrees in Eastern Washington, but Eastern Washington is always very hot. Last year, I was out in Eastern washington in june when we had that big heat dome here uh where we had you know we were hitting record high temperatures last summer uh and out in eastern washington we we were hitting 118 120 degrees uh which is you know even for for there it's unheard of um but here right now we are having i mean i'm looking out my window it's overcast and it has been usually in mid-july we are in the 90s Um, and right now we're, you know, we're, we're mid seventies and it's, you know, (laughs) bombing. And so people are not understanding the, the difference between climate and weather. So, you know, the. We, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, heat wave in the UK and Spain and Portugal right now that has killed a lot of people already, um, melting runways, as you probably heard, uh, and, and people are saying, well, we had a heat wave in 1976 and it got this hot. But when you look at the global map of temperature in 1976 versus the global map of temperature uh, in 2022, uh, they're, they, they are... Absolutely different. So you're seeing the reds and the yellows of the heat uh, in in 2022, where you're you're only seeing hot spots in 1976. So yeah, in a couple of areas it got very very hot, but most of the globe was not uh, in this substantially increased uh, uh, temperature range. So so so, um, so
0: when you say these things to people. Uh, You know, I'm not talking the 30, 35 percent you're you're calling on the on the right. I'm talking the 70, whatever percent who are voting for Larson. And Larson's not a climate science denier. I think you could call him a climate science ignorer, but not
1: a denier. Delayer. We call him a client climate science delayer. Delayer. Okay. You know, delaying is as good as denial at this point. And so so yeah i mean yeah, they they are so some people absolutely recognize it i mean that's one of the things that has actually brought me to prominence in this race um is that people know rick Larson takes a ton of money from the fossil fuel industry i mean he's taken checks from exxon mobil and bp and and uh locally we've got uh, puget sound energy so uh he he is uh and we and he talks about um the work he has done for climate—I mean, take the the Build Back Better bill that had somewhere around four hundred million dollars carved out for climate action. So he presents himself as we, the Democrats, have done more for climate than has ever been done in the past. And and I talk to people about the fact that that four hundred million in the Build Back Better, which isn't going to pass anyway. Um, is they're calling this transformational? Well, it's not transformational. It's seven percent of the military budget, and the military is the largest non-state polluter in the world. If it was a country by itself, it would be the twenty-fifth most polluting country in the world in terms of emissions. So, so. When you have those conversations with people, I think a lot of people in this district, because it is a solidly blue district, you know, you've got that 65 to 70% of people who do vote uh, uh, with the Democratic Party, Um, and then the other segment is the people who have typically not voted in the past, uh, young people, people who are in college, people who are voting for the first time, they get it. Um, so I don't have to convince those people. They understand what their future is going to be like if, like if we don't tackle this climate crisis right now. So there is a segment of the Democratic population that's like, but we've got to have jobs. That's actually a fight we're having locally at the state level. We have got some state races where we've got a Democrat changing, uh, challenging a Democrat who is very good on climate. Uh, but the Democrat who is challenging him, um, is more concerned with Jobs and good union jobs, and dialing back um, the the climate provisions that, that this who I would consider my preferred candidate in this race um, is trying to push for our state. So um, he's not the, the good thing about this is this challenger who is the and he's he's being funded by the way. Uh, there's there are people running ads for him that are fossil fuel backpacks. Um, so that's where this challenge is coming, but he's going to, he's going to lose because the guy who is good on climate is very well liked. And people really appreciate that he is fighting hard at the state level for those climate provisions. So I think that this is a really good district to have that climate conversation. And I think people who understand the climate science are going to win out.
0: Okay. So if you want to reduce the Pentagon budget, uh, It's very connected to the issue of climate because one, you know, reducing the Pentagon budget frees up funds for transition, transitioning the economy. Uh, But it also very much connects to the whole issue of foreign policy. So how do you differ from Larson on foreign policy?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I I consider myself uh, uh, mostly a non-interventionist, sort of a global. I'm more interested in global cooperation. I'm a big supporter of at least the intent of the United Nations. I think the United Nations gets hamstrung a lot by big powerful actors. But I, I think, um, you know, when we talk about uh, should we be intervening with our military here or there, uh, my, my initial sort of my gut response is always, no, let's really assess the situation. And if we need to have any kind of military response anywhere in the world, it needs to be um, a matter of global cooperation, not coerced by business interests um, you know, I, I don't think anybody can deny why we went into Iraq in 2003. There were massive oil interests right there. I don't know if you saw this, um, but uh, the U.S. Southern Command uh, four-star General Laura Richardson just recently uh, held a conference where she was talking about all of the resources that are in Venezuela. And right away, I start thinking to myself, okay, so now we understand uh, why we are, are interested in having a change of leadership in Venezuela and are willing to, um, you know, kind of uh, support coups. Uh, that are not popular. We have this history, as you know, I don't need to tell you this, we have this history of looking uh, at places around the world that have resources that we can exploit um, often for, uh, not just business in general, but often for uh, the military industrial complex. So Laura Richardson, four star generals, is talking about the massive amounts of lithium that they have there, the massive amounts of fresh water that are are available in Venezuela. And then she starts talking about the Venezuelan expatriates that are living in the United States and we're talking to them. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, so now they're going to make some excuses. to want to go back and you know sort of restore quote unquote functional democracy in Venezuela, um, and and it it's all very very concerning to me. Um, I'm a I'm just opposed to that kind of um, exploitation.
0: Do you and Larson differ on American policy towards Ukraine?
1: Yes. In what Yes, way? we do. Um, I well larson is as uh, you know a member of the house armed services committee he's very um he's very you know i don't want this to come off as to, as saying i am uh, anti ukraine or pro putin because i i am neither of those things i can say uh, firmly that putin's invasion was illegal it was immoral um i'm opposed to war uh, uh, but you know my focus in regards to ukraine um is one I don't think that we would be interested in Ukraine if there weren't massive amounts of oil and gas uh, resources there. I mean, that's just a you know, uh, I I use the compa- comparison with Rwanda. There were human rights abuses in Rwanda in the mid '90s. We didn't go near it, um, and the reason is there was nothing in Rwanda that was was strategically or resource based important for us. Um, but that's not obviously not the case for uh, for Ukraine. Um, so. Uh, I I am not a supporter of Ukraine uh, joining NATO. Um, if we go back to when the the Berlin Wall fell and assurances that were made by Secretary of State James Baker back then that the United States would not uh, encroach on you know former uh, Soviet territory, um, I think all of these are legitimate. You know, think what you can about Putin. I mean, you know, I I, I don't. Agree with anything that Putin has done in regards to Ukraine. Um, but when, if we don't have this sort of larger picture of, uh, what Putin as a world leader feels about Russian national security, that we're just completely ignoring that, then we are, uh, provocative provocateurs in the situation and I think a lot of Americans because we've been conditioned uh, to to think about American global supremacy and we're always the good guys uh, that we have a very jaded lens when it comes to something like you know what is happening right now in Ukraine so uh, my biggest concern about Ukraine is it seems like that negotiations for a ceasefire are absolutely nowhere to be found. And so, as a peace activist, which I have been, and a war protester, which I have been for the last 30 years, I want to know why our first focus isn't getting people to put down their guns. Because the more weapons that we supply to the Ukrainians, the more Ukrainians are going to die. Um, that's that's just been the history uh, of us arming conflicts around the world. So, you know, whatever the outcome might be in the end, whether there need to be um In order to to reach a peace, whether there need to be some uh, uh, concessions in terms of the Donbass region, um, I I don't I don't know. But what I do know is that we're not even trying to negotiate a ceasefire. um, And we're simply as the United States putting our foot down and saying, you know, we're just we're just going to keep funding this war. Um, And I think Americans now are looking at this going, wow. How is it that we can just send a couple trillion dollars at the drop of a hat over to Ukraine? Most of that money is going to weapons contractors, and we still have thirty million people in this country that, that can't go uh, to I, see a doctor. I don't I, think think, I don't think first it's first a couple of trillion, billion, is it? Uh, well, how many? There's there, a, there, mo, there's mo, been an mo, appropriation for seven hundred fifty billion. Yeah, I think. What, how, how much has it been up to date? I, to
0: date? I, I'm not sure the exact numbers, and I don't think— I'm not sure it's actually very clear, the exact numbers, but I don't think it's a couple of trillion. The, the big arming started after the invasion. There was arming before, but the big push came afterwards. At any rate, it's, it's vastly significant. Uh, okay, well, what about on China? Do you and Larson differ on uh, American approach to China?
1: Um, Larson very much wants to open China up. I mean, uh, to, uh, to American markets. So as far as a sort of foreign policy on China, um, I'm not sure that he sees China as a huge threat. I think he sees China as a huge economic opportunity for American business interests. Um, I don't see China as a huge threat at, at this point. Um, I, I think, um, China, while, Remaining uh, probably the largest emissions producer in the world is has actually made some significant strides in reducing its emissions. Um, You know, I mean that's that's sort of a a, an oxymoron right there that they are still um, uh, you know opening up coal fired plants while also. Um, transitioning towards renewable and sustainable energy. I mean, that's just a that's just a problem ha- of having you know a billion and a half people um, that you that you have to provide energy for. I, I would so- think
0: I would think Boeing is a little schizophrenic on on this issue because uh, they want the Chinese market as much as they can. On the other hand, almost war over Taiwan is good for the military. Uh, arms side of Boeing. So they, they, I would guess they probably push both things. But if Larson's more into more economic contact with China, that's probably a good thing given how many warmongers there
1: are. he's going to support what the what in the end, the military industrial complex uh, wants. That's that is in the end what what he wants. But he has talked about um, economic development in China, like opening China up to uh, American markets. Um, And my i would say always my concern in that as a as a as a labor person is whatever markets might be opened up around the world if we have these free trade agreements um then then the workers in these opening markets um are are open to ex- exploitation and i think we need to be very cautious about that um but that's that's just a a standard for me with with the global workforce um that that uh, these free trade deals that we have had you know have dri- have driven um Wages and working conditions around the world into you know exploitative um, uh, circumstances.
0: Uh, let's go back to climate. Where do you give me two or three very specific examples where you differ on climate policy with Larson?
1: Well, I mean he he doesn't he doesn't support the Green New Deal. I mean he's just flat out said he doesn't support the Green New Deal. Okay, the well be be
0: specific um, for people who. Don't know all about the Green New Deal. Give me some examples of what's in it and what he doesn't support.
1: So the Green the Green New Deal resolution is simply a a set of bills that you know and and it, so it's not it's not necessarily firm legislative policy at this point. Um, it does include things like uh, the Green New Schools Act, um, the Green New Infrastructure Act, where we're converting. Um, uh, you know, schools to, you know, we're retrofitting all the schools in the country with, with you know, solar panels and energy efficiency and all of that kind of thing. Um, and same thing with transportation where we're making, you know, we want to make massive investments in conversion to, uh, you know, electric buses and, and more investments in rail. Um, and so he has simply said that he does not, quote unquote, support the Green New Deal. The big sticking point for him is the impacts on the aviation industry, where, um, you know, the, the Green New Deal even says, uh, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna have to scale back air travel and find other more fuel efficient forms of transportation. Obviously, that impacts the aviation industry. The aviation industry, uh, uh, funds his campaign substantially. And then, of course, you know, Boeing. But, uh, you know, he, he is protective of that industry as the chair of aviation, um, and so he is resistant to those clim- climate policies. You know? uh,
0: one of the critiques of the Green New Deal is some of the provisions or proposals kind of go beyond climate issues. Uh, the, what you mentioned earlier about the federal jobs guarantee uh, at a living wage, uh, some people think that is too much, meaning there are sections of the elites, of the capitalists that do get there has to be a, a, a somewhat transi- uh, not somewhat there needs to be a transformative transition to a sustainable economy. but they don't want an economy with a jobs guarantee. That kind of cuts to the core of the rights of capital to keep wages down. but maybe exactly. that sh- but, but maybe that shouldn't be the issue if there's such a climate urgency. Maybe the Green New Deal you know shouldn't take that in and fight that as a separate fight.
1: The The reason, the big reason that the federal jobs guarantee is in there is that because of the urgency and because of the need to change so many systems at a large scale, our energy systems, our transportation systems at a large scale, that the federal jobs guarantees. Guarantee basically says, Look, there's so much work to be done here that we can put people to work and we can eliminate uh, unemployment uh, while we are moving forward with the climate transitions that we need to make. I mean, that's really what it's there for.
0: Now, that's a dagger in the heart of capitalism to say we're going to eliminate unemployment. Well, I'm fine with that too, but I'm not okay. With the climate crisis wiping out organized human society before we get enough popular support for putting a dagger in the heart of capitalism, so you know maybe we'll get to this kind of point where the where you can have that kind of more systemic fight. But right now we're not getting anywhere, and I'm wondering if if maybe some of that that kind of demand so alienates. all sections of capital, then as I say, I'm not saying it shouldn't be fought, but maybe it's a, it needs to be a separate fight. because uh, if, if, yeah. right now cause the problem I mean the problem for most of the capitalist elites that, that that pay attention, I would say most don't even pay attention. They just you know make and spend money every day. but for the ones that do pay attention, They do look ahead and they are, you know, they see that what if socialism is the only way to deal with the climate crisis? Because if it is, and and full employment means a form of socialism, really. If it is, well, I'd rather have the climate crisis because I'm so rich, I'll be okay anyway.
1: You know what? There is enough uh, sort of, I call it sociopathy uh, in, in the elites. Uh, you know, the wealthy people. I mean, I, I think there is something about vast amounts of wealth that even if you maybe weren't a sociopath <laughs> at the beginning of that journey, that you end up being a sociopath once you've acquired that kind of wealth, um, that you forget about the struggles of the working class. And, the, and, you know, the fact that we, you know, like I said, we've got 30 million people without healthcare. We've got uh, a housing crisis where we have half a million people homeless. I mean, yeah, socialism could solve All of these problems. And I'm, I am not, you know, I want to make sure people understand. I am not for despotic, tyrannical socialism. I am simply for implementing public policy that solves our social problems or that, or that moves towards you know i'm not saying that we can solve everything with the with the snap of a finger but it at least moves us in the direction of solving these massive crises that are before us um and no i don't think that you know somebody's you know take jeff bezos i don't know how old he is jeff bezos is 60 years old um and he's richer than god i i absolutely don't think he cares about anything um, other than maintaining his own wealth and power, and yeah, by the time the real impacts of climate hit, whether it's you know 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, no, 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 um, no, 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 way
0: sooner, no, 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 that we're gonna. Have- well,
1: I think no, now I think no, I, I think it's going to be way sooner. I think the climate. Well, the the schedule, scientists
0: say I'm, it's I'm going to be about, way sooner.
1: Okay, okay, so I, I think the conventional sort of cautious wisdom uh in, in this, which I, I don't agree with, so I'm glad you brought brought that up. I do think that things are accelerating at a much more rapid pace than even climate scientists 10 years ago thought they would. I mean, the evidence is there with, you know, you've got, you've got, I I remember uh, a while back, climate scientists said, well, look, if if the Antarctic ice sheets start breaking up, boy, we're in real trouble. And what happened last summer, you saw a giant chunk of the Antarctic ice shelf uh, break away. Um, And, And there have been so many markers over the last few years, you know, both poles melting at the same time um, that that. You know the climate scientists are are now screaming their heads off about this, but they are being muted by um, the the corporate media. Uh, in, in yeah, I mean, I know. think so, I mean this yeah, is what yeah. I, I when I, you get I the story. But I don't think, but I don't think Bezos even cares about this because he knows, you know, his his time on this earth is limited, and he's got massive resources. And in terms of actual impacts to his life, it's it's not going to impact him. Of course, we know it's going to impact. The poorest, the most vulnerable communities around the world, not just in this country. So, yeah, I mean, there's a real sociopathy among the wealthy elites uh, in in regards to climate change, and I think the best thing to combat that is to keep talking about that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that you know, when you're out talking to foss- to aerospace, fossil fuel workers, and everybody else. Uh, it's very important to say one point five degree warming once you explain what that is it's not okay yep. it's not okay we're only yeah. at one two or one three now and look what's going on here uh exactly. is five, a disaster and when you hit one five you're probably on your way to two and we are on our way to two so
1: i I think so too i I, I have these conversations you know god I was having this conversation like it's hard as an individual understanding the science like not really do not get depressed about the prospects of changing this for the future because we're up against these behemoths of industry that are only concerned with making their own profits and maintaining their own power. I was talking to my wife about this last night. I was just like, you know, honey, I'm, I'm, I, I have, you know, my brain starts, I feel like my brain is caving in trying to deal with the fact that, you know, are, are we are we going to be able to, you know, and, and this is in relation to my position of running for Congress, like, what am I actually going to be able to do about this, um, you know, and I think it's a responsibility for people who understand this and it's one of the reasons I want to get myself in this position of power, so that I will have an elevated national platform to keep talking about this loudly and we're not going to get the changes that we need until we change the public consciousness and the public consciousness is not going to change through the rich elites who control mass media it's going to change uh, through through grassroots activism my goal is to take that grassroots activism to congress because we have a congress that is you know bought and paid for by the corporations and you know the republican party almost 100%, the Democratic Party, probably like 92%, right? So we've got, I mean, that's that's the fight that we're up against. And you see with some of the, the redistricting that happened, I mean, uh, you probably know Marie Newman uh, lost her seat and she was one of the strongest advocates for, for um, climate action in Congress. She was a prolific legislation writer. Well, the Democratic um, uh, state legislature in Illinois, I mean, it's two-thirds in the House and the Senate in Illinois, it's two-thirds controlled by Democrats. Well, what they did is they redistricted redistricted her to uh, go against uh, Chewy Garcia. They put her and Chuy Garcia in the same seat, two good progressives. And Marie said, well, I'm not going to challenge Chuy Garcia because he's a great progressive also. And she went back to her old district where, you know, part of her old district and challenged a new Democrat, which Rick Larson is one of that new Democrats. So voters, just quickly for
0: people that don't know, new Democrats, sort of the Bill Clinton Democrats that decided that the Democratic Party should even be more corporate than it already was.
1: Yeah. The new Democrats, um, if you go back to the history of the the new Democrats, they were actually funded uh, by the Koch brothers because, you know, candidates, to form this coalition, were funded by the Koch brothers and Rick Larson has taken Koch brother money. They don't the Koch brothers don't have to donate anymore because they've got Citizens United. But prior to Citizens United, uh, the Koch brothers used to fund candidates and they funded the new Democrats because they wanted an explicitly free trade caucus within the Democratic Party. They, and and so that's what the new Democrats are. And it and it uh, one of the big fights that I have with the progressive caucus in Congress um, is that they have opened up. Their membership to a lot of new Democrats. And the new Democrats are an explicitly anti progressive caucus, so it makes no sense to me. Um, well, but, okay, well, you, know, you, you got, you, well,
0: hang on, because you, you kind of went right, you went right to where I was going, uh, which okay. is, which is some, uh, you know, some people on the left are saying, that you know, it's it's time to give up on the Democratic Party. Look, you know, the, you know, the, any hope that the, the progressives and, and there, you know, some people have been critical of the Squad, AOC, and others, you know, that that they just haven't been able to have the kind of impact. Uh, and to a large extent, I think they're shut out of the media, so it's kind of hard to have as much impact as when AOC was kind of on fire. Uh, the media doesn't even want to give her that much space anymore. Uh, but some of the critique is that there's been too much, so much accommodation necessary with corporate Democrats uh, that the progressive and you know, when I mean progressive, I don't mean the progressive caucus. I mean people we would all call actual progressives.
1: Uh, I call them actually progressive, right? Okay, <laughs> yeah.
0: actually progressive. Uh, that that they're not getting very far right now and and that you know maybe it can't be done through the Democratic Party. Now, I'm not making that argument because I don't actually see what the alternative is. But what do you say to people who argue that? Because you must have people around you well, I- that say that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of people who who agree with me on all of my policies and they simply dig their heels in and say, I can't vote for a Democrat. And I was like, well, you know, I'm I'm not. The standard Democrat, I mean, I've been, I'm I'm going into this thing as an activist. The Democratic Party is a vehicle to get myself elected. Um, I since I don't take any corporate money, I'm not beholden to the same interests. I mean, I'm literally going into this as a I want to say an honest and transparent and clean candidate about, you know, who I am and what I'm going to fight for. Um, the reality of the electorate in my district is that most of the voting population, that 65 to 70%, um, they do consider them Democrats. And when you look at the voting patterns, when you have green candidates running, uh, they get less than a percent in the primaries. Even here in a, what is a very progressive district, um, they 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 do absolutely terribly um, because the green, I, I have to say that, that uh, the green party has not built a, a a particularly good national infrastructure for running for office, um, and you know that's that's just one of the things that we're up against. So I would appeal to anybody who considers themselves an independent, uh, uh, progressive, or left-leaning progressive, especially in my district. Um, you've got to work within the system that you have, and I understand and agree with all of the criticisms from the left about the Democratic Party, and yet we have this system that we have to work with. So um, I, I'm certainly a candidate that wants to make sure—I'm a supporter of a multi-party system. And so whatever I can do uh, in with, with my influence as a legislator in Congress to—and to, it may not be much. I mean, I'm not going to even say that, that I'm going to be able to make that substantial impact. Um, but again, I can, in an elected position. I can give voice to the direction that we need to go, even if you know I'm stymied in terms of actually passing legislation, because a lot of the work that we have to do to make those changes is changing public consciousness, where you're not changing any public consciousness by re- re-electing Rick Larson, it's just more the same and the status quo. And that's what I would like the independent progress, rather than focus on the D, Uh, is focus on who is the candidate and what kind of good are they going to be able to do for the the greater movement if they're elected.
0: All right. Well, that's a good closing statement. How do people find you?
1: Um, A call for Congress. uh, If you uh, you can't see it on my poster back there, but um, uh, call for Congress, F-O-R, not the number four, callforcongress.com at Call for Congress on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and uh, we'd certainly appreciate any support that anybody can give us. Um, and, and just as a, a, a quick note on the race, I want to say again that it is going to be me and Rick Larson down the stretch. Uh, he has a $700,000 war chest right now, that is largely funded by giant corporations. Um, he, he's got, he's got 60, he gets 60% of his funding from PACs, m- much of it corporate PACs. Um, and 40% of his individual contributions, uh, come from, uh, uh, individuals with the title of corporate executive or some, some form of corporate, corporate executive or, or lobbyist. And so that's who he's working for. And me, as a 100% grassroots candidate, we've raised um, over 175 thousand dollars to date, an average contribution of 22 dollars. And my only constituent is, you know, making sure that we move these uh, humanity-centered policies forward.
0: Okay, I'll just give you one one final question. Even though I said that that was a good closing okay. statement, uh, there's a good chance. That the Republicans are are going to take one or both houses in 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 the next election, Um, and when I say Republicans, I should also say, to a large extent, white Christian nationalists. Uh, They already control the Supreme Court, Um, and you know the way Biden's going, uh, they might have the presidency in 2024. I don't know if if he's going to run again or not. but, but the strength of this rising you know, far-right Christian nationalist uh, form of fascist movement, it's, it's really gaining strength. Uh, how, how much danger do you think the country's in, and how does that factor into your thinking when you're running?
1: um i personally i think i think that there's a real danger of losing as you said one or both houses potentially the presidency what i would want the moderate the more moderate democratic voter to consider is why that has happened. And from the progressive perspective, it has happened because the Democratic Party has sucked up to corporations for the last 40 years, instead of getting good policy done for uh, the people of this country. And I think that if we can uh, work towards and unite around good progressive social policy and economic policy, that we can uh, change direction and push back on those Christian fascists. I don't think that they are a majority of people. They are very clever uh, in terms of their leadership and they are very well organized. And I think that is something that the left has not uh, been able to manage. I think that we have the numbers. We simply don't have the organization and the unity. Now, moderate Democrats, they talk about unity as a vote blue no matter who. I'm talking about a unity around progressive policy that is going to help the majority of people in this country. And once we have a government that is helping the majority of people in this country, instead of, you know, uh, dumping on them constantly, which is what a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are dealing with in terms of the rank and file. I think that's where we start making some, some inroads to uh, uh, stifling um, the, the, these Christian theocrats. But we're not going to do that if we don't have something in terms of policy to offer uh, uh, people. Oh. You know, they're, ter- they're, they're just simply oh. going to turn away from politics.
0: All right. Thanks very much, Jason.
1: Absolutely. Appreciate it Paul very much.
0: And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button. We we can't do this without your support. And subscribe and get, most importantly get on the email list.